Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by The Memo, the weekly I Choose the Ladder newsletter that goes out every Monday to help you with your career development during the week. In the newsletter, I share articles that I found helpful as a black woman working in corporate America, career development resources, job opportunities, and upcoming I Choose the Ladder events. Everything we do is released to the subscribers of the newsletter first. If the memo sounds like something you'd like to receive, you can subscribe by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. Again, that's CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. In this episode, you meet Ezene Kabare. Ezene is a global citizen, change agent, diversity leader, and ally. Her professional career began in the financial services industry, though she quickly set her sights to the media and entertainment industries. During her 11-year tenure at Viacom Media Networks, Ezene served in various roles in auditing, compliance, project management, change management, diversity and inclusion, and employee engagement. This thought leader is now using her talents in the fashion industry as H&M's North America's head of diversity and inclusion. In this role, she's tasked with creating a strategic framework, facilitating and leading the company's mission to foster diversity, inclusion, democracy, and respect for all its employees. Ezene's proven track record for executing with excellence, driving innovative results, and championing for progressive change speak for themselves. Recently named amongst 30 black stars by Face to Face Africa and Essence Magazine's Women to Watch, Ezene uses her experience and network to support organizations that empower young girls and service underrepresented communities. Her worldview is one that upholds the value that mandate equality, access, and opportunity for all humanity. It was such a pleasure talking to Ezene. First of all, she's an immigrant just like me. She's also with Delta, so shout out to the store. But she dropped so many gems in how she thinks about her role as a diversity and inclusion leader. So grab grad, choose your letter, notebook, and pen, and get ready to get this work. Ezene, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast, even though I stalked you and I was like, I got to get this <laughs> on the podcast. Thank you for saying yes to my request for being here. Yes, you were just tapping into your network. That's what it's about. Um, thank you for the invitation of having me and the platform you've created. Um, so the first question in my, one of my interviews that I watched, you talked about, you know, being an immigrant and moving to the United States and then being here for a while and not going back to Nigeria for eight years, right? And having that being like your frame of reference of being in two worlds, how do you think that has impacted how you look at your job? Um, we'll talk yeah. about the same job, but like you do DNI work, but you're DNI physically. You you're just a regular black woman, but on the inside, you are Nigerian and you were raised in America. So how does that lens help you think about the work? Yeah, no, excellent question. I think too is we actually I actually did not go back to Nigeria for it was over eight years. I would say it was close to like twelve. Now that I'm thinking about it, as you're asking me. I think, it, yeah, because we went specifically, one of my favorite uncles, who's like a father to me, was getting married. <laughs> and that's when it was one of those, it was like, everybody has to go back. It was like a, like a big wedding for us. Um, but I think that that ties into so much of who I am and actually how I lean into this role, because I do know what it feels like to be different. I do know what it feels like 
to have a different name. My name is Ezene. People are always, you know, hesitating when they look at it. I used to be in school and the teacher's going down the list. You can tell it's in some type of alphabetical order. And then they come to your name and it's this like awkward pause. And it's just kind of like, oh, uh, here, here. <laughs> and then you hear, oh, I don't want to mess this up, which is always so funny to me. And then, I, and then I'm like, okay, well, can you try so we know who you're talking about? I'm not the only foreigner that's sitting here. And, you know, then it, I can see that they're struggling to say as an A. And it was a point where in growing up, my middle name is Christine. And I actually used to go by Christine because we have this tendency, especially as younger people, you want to fit in. You don't want to be different. There is no thing as being unique. You don't want to be unique. You want to be like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, that's what I was doing. I was like, I am going to be like everyone else. My name is Christine. And going to fall in if whatever the girls are doing that's I'm going to do that too and um so I know how it feels to be different I know how it feels to not feel a sense of belonging right to not uh, be appreciated for your uniqueness so I think because of that I I have this rigorous passion for diversity inclusion and equity and belonging and to making sure that we're speaking for those that felt the same way I felt, you know, and I can remember people pouring into me growing up, my, my teachers of the managers that I've had when I started working and pushed me to do better and do more, mm-hmm. refused to let me sit in the corner and just glide by with good grades. There was like, no, we see more in you. So I want to be that person to be able to go and say, I see more in you and I want you to push forward. Um, so that's how it directly impacts me in, in this role and in corporate America in general as, as a black woman. Growing up, definitely grew up in a very Nigerian traditional household. You know, so so, so, I, so I, I tap to that. And, and that's why I think part of it why I lead with excellence and I have a certain work um, stamina that I do have because that's what was required. Like, this is what you did. Um, you know, but I think that the interesting thing too, as I will lie, is that everyone thinks everything is perfect, but I don't think people understand even some of the criticism that I face in taking on my current role. Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's a divide, unfortunately, in the U.S. with Black Americans when it comes to Black Americans or African Americans or Africans coming from a different part of the, um, of the world and coming into the U.S. where it's kind of like we tend to fight with each other instead of understanding. At the end of it, we are all African. So mm-hmm. if you keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper, you will find that line. And yes, you know, my experiences and your experience may not be the same thing, but when we're walking down the street, all they see is two black girls. All they see is a black girl and a, and a black guy. They're they're not looking any deeper than that. But I think we need to find ways where we stop dividing each other and realize that there's power in, in collaboration and being together. Mm-hmm. And the name thing is very real. So I remember in third grade, like the, the show that I saw was Saved by the Bell. And the only black girl that was on it was Lisa Turtle. So I was like, hey, I got a proposal. We should change my name. Tell me that. And my dad was like, watch it. If you don't go sit out somewhere and move here, like, boo. Look at how Lisa Turtle is here. I was like, oh my God. Like, because I didn't want to be different. And now in my late 30s or mid 30s, um, there's so many parts of Liberian me that I've lost that I'm trying to reclaim. Mm-hmm. Because right. in the beginning, I, was, I just want to be an American. Like, just, just yeah. make me Lisa Turtle. Like, that's all I want. Um, so, 
We're going to back back a little bit. So you're Nigerian and immigrant parents, they want you to be a doctor, a lawyer, or, well, you, you did it the you did it the first part, right? Because you, your background is in accounting. But like, how did you get into corporate? Is it something like if your parents had the network, you were able to lean on that? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, no, they didn't have no type of network whatsoever. <laughs> I remember being in school and we were trying to figure out this whole financial aid and what does it mean and how, like, and so, again, something that people probably don't even think about. It's like we were sitting here trying to figure out how to apply for school lunch. Like there was no type of network or anything like that. And um, what happened was um they, the, my, my family, majority of them, actually, funny enough, are in the medical health industry some, somehow. They're first responders in some sense. They're the essential workers. Yeah. And then my mom was the only one in business. She was in business strategy and all those things. So I guess genetics or the genes, I, so I fell into that, into that space and, and got into business that way. But um, I always knew that I will be in business and in corporate somehow. I don't think I knew exactly what type of role it was, even though I, I'm, I, I'm a Howard University alum where I studied accounting in the School of Business. And to be honest, I, and this is a good thing for people listening, I really picked accounting because I knew it was the foundation of business. I, I had no idea. I didn't want to be an accountant. So I already knew that from like beginning. You know, I knew I didn't want to be in like financial services, none of those things, because I wanted to also tap into creativity and my people network. But it made sense at the time because I was trying to figure out what is a solid foundation. So I had to tap into that and really what my family just did was um, at least provide the opportunity to explore a bit. I mean, we had to decide immediately what the major was. Like, you couldn't come in there and be like, I'm about to be undecided. My family was not having that. Um, <laughs> but when I said accounting, you know, they were fine with it because they was like, oh, okay, accounting makes sense. And I'm like, I don't want to be an accountant. They was like, yeah, we'll see later on what happens. Um, so I think now is interesting because as my roles have shifted over the years from accounting to business strategy, change management, diversity and inclusion, I'm still explaining to them what I do on a regular basis, you know? <laughs> so I have to be like, yeah, I was involved. I was part of that process. I do this and I talk about this. And I think the more that they see like articles and interviews, they're understanding a bit more. But to be honest, in the beginning, once I came out of the financial services industry, I think they were like, wait, what are you doing? And how are you doing that? Um, luckily for me, I, I, I work with big companies. So they at least understood the name and they were okay with the name. Right. Yes. That's how it wasn't too much of a push to go do your CPA because they knew the company. Yeah. Um, but it's so yeah. funny how parents really influence um, your ability to explore and to kind of figure out what you want to be when you grow up. But also, I think it, it also impacts the choices that we make, because I remember when I was thinking about leaving Yahoo and going to a company who, like, whose name my parents couldn't brag about. Right. Like they said Yahoo. Like, so they let me chill. Right. They were like, she works for Yahoo. And then it was like, yeah, yeah. Unite for, what is a unite for? You know what I'm saying? Like. Staying with a company just to, like your parents have some love of comfort um, and make yeah. it the place where you're like, actually, I'm going to make my career decisions for me now at this point. Like, I've done it now. 
So, but I was when you because you work for H and M, that is a global company. Everybody knows it, so at least exactly. they can say you know H and M, and she yeah, works yeah, there. Yeah. They're like they're not, she works there. We don't we don't know what she does, but she works for that company. Right, right, exactly. Oh, um, they're so funny. So, getting back to your very first job out of Howard, right? So you go to a place that's super black, like it is it is black. In your first job, it is black. <laughs> I'm the one that other used to come for me when they hear me talking. But it is, it is the mecca for, for Black people, right? And then going into your first job, how diverse was that? And if it wasn't, how did you deal with, like, the culture shock of it all? Yeah, I, I think this is the thing. This is this is how they get you. Um, when you're at Howard's campus, we had a, a extreme privilege of working with some amazing companies that would come and sponsor. I was in the school of business. We had different teams that would sponsor the teams. And they'll do these recruitment things. And what, what was happening is, and now that I'm in my role at H&M, it's so interesting to see this, but what was happening is they were bringing forth their um, black and brown employees. So you're there like, oh, so, so many of us, like, you know, like, how was your experience? And understanding that you did know that corporate America did had a bit of an imbalance, but you were so excited to see people that look like you. So they, you know, they will sell the company to you and, and what their experiences have been. So, okay, it's like, that works. Um, then <laughs> you get your offer, super excited about it. Like, yes, I have a job. I graduated. And then you go into um, probably some type of training and then some type of first assignment. And that's when the real shocker happens. Mm-hmm. And really what ha- happens is I think, you are definitely meeting people from around the world, which, which is diversity of itself, which is fantastic. But you are in a bit of a shock because you're seeing that is not that many people that look like you in this space. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a real awakening. It's a real thing, you know, even especially even in that junior level too. But I think that what I did was um, started to be, and this is, again, Howard was a great foundation and showing me that I belong in that room and really showing me that I deserve to be here. I'm just as smart. I have the skill set and I've got this role the same way everyone else got this role. So mm-hmm. what am I going to do in this role and how am I going to find basically my crew, like my circle of people that I can lead into that maybe I didn't think that we had anything in common beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what was the hardest in those spaces, though, it is networking because people gravitate towards people that they're similar to. So oftentimes you're the one that's creating some type of icebreaker or being the bold one to walk into like an existing circle of people having the conversation. And I and I vividly remember the handful of people that would kind of pull me into those conversations. And I appreciate those people. And that's where you see the allyship starts to show up. You know, when you see someone kind of sit in the corner, engage them into the conversation to ask them about the experiences, understanding that there are the only. So, yeah, I think that even sometimes in the executive roles I sit in now, I'm oftentimes the only. So you, you continue to see that pattern. And really what you have to remember is how do you continue to instill confidence in yourself? How do you continue to pour back into you to remember, I belong here, my voice matters, I'm going to be vocal and I'm going to contribute because um, it, it, it doesn't go away. And that's the fight that we're trying to do. We're trying to minimize the number of people that have that experience of being the only. 
Um, so you talked a little bit like about, you know, the people who see you and then they pull you into stuff. And I think for a lot of times when I think about that, those are people who have become my mentors and my sponsors at the, like, the respective organizations that I've worked for. So for you, like what role has mentorship played in your like your career and how did you go about getting and finding these people who wanted to invest in your development? Yeah, no, I think that everyone thinks that this, like this secret sauce and super formal process of getting mentors and sponsors. You know, I think I have mentors that got me in my career and then I have sponsors in the business, in the industry or outside of it that can speak about me when I'm not in the room. So it's important that you actually have both. Um, so that's a mentor and a sponsor. So in, in, in terms of finding the mentor, to be honest, the mentors that I have, they're just the most organic things that happen. Like, I, I don't think I can recall one time I sat down and asked someone, can you be my mentor? What, I, let me tell you what happens. <laughs> what, what I do, because I'm a, I'm a bit crazy, is that I'll be talking, like, as I'm talking to you now, and the next time we have a conversation, I'm like, oh, my God, you're just the best mentor ever. Like, <laughs> you, give me, <laughs> you give me so much great advice. Like, and, and that's the relationship that we build. And then I'll just come back and say, hey, can I get in your calendar next month? I'm going to give you some updates on what's going on in my career. Or, hey, you know, can we, I would love to catch up to see what you've been working on. So making sure that the, the relationship, too, can go both ways, that they're also benefiting from you. And you're just listening. It's not about them always giving you advice, but listen to their stories. Your stories of your mentors is also a form of advice and information as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's what I do with my mentors. So they have been phenomenal. Majority of them happen to be women. Um, but I think when I move into the sponsorship category, category, I think this is where I start to see more of my male allies kind of come up and support me. And, it, and coincidentally, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about it now. And it's probably because they <clears throat> sit in, in, in roles of influence and of power and authority so that they are the ones that are in the room having these conversations. Mm -hmm. And really what a sponsor does is the sponsor essentially is thinking about projects and seeing how they can get you into a space, like helping you get to that next opportunity. Again, whether that's in your current company, I have some there. I also have some in industry. And then I just have others that just happen to be just random people that I may have met in different networking spaces that I am. But I think the important thing here is to make sure that they know what are your goals because you're, they're not going to be success, successful helping you or sponsoring you or advocating for you if they don't know what your skill set is and if they don't know what is it that you want to do. Um, and I can recall back, I remember having um, conversations with a previous manager and I used to propose things to them all the time. I'm like, I would love a project um, that's international in Europe. I want, I want global experience. I would love to head this department. I would love to do this. So now I've planted those seeds. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is when it comes up in the conversation, because be, be very clear, the unwritten rules is that decisions are often being made before they're being made openly, right? Mm -hmm. People are already starting to have those conversations. So my name automatically, well, hopefully my name becomes top of mind and so, they can be able to put me forth in different opportunities that come up. So what is it about you that you think makes people willing to sponsor you? Because when someone's sponsoring you, they are leveraging their 
personal capital and with the relationships that they form and they're putting it on the line for you. So like, as people think about sponsorship and, and wanting to get sponsors, what do you think it is? And maybe as someone who sponsors people, right? Like, what is it about that person that makes them someone that you're willing to sponsor? Yeah, I, yeah, great question. I think definitely it's someone that you can see yourself working, working with too, right? Someone that if you had the ability, you were starting your own company, you would easily hire them. You can speak, you can speak um, confidently as to what they do, what they stand for, what their work thing is. And again, these people may not know you in and out, but they should know enough about you to be able to speak to you. And I think that what people, people that have sponsored me and have spoken my name in spaces that I'm not in is that they know that I am, I lead with integrity and with excellence. I'm an executor, like strip away the titles. I have no problem rolling in my sleeves and getting the work done. Mm -hmm. And I can motivate and work well with so many people. So even just that alone, those impressions, and I think making sure that you're consistent and building those relationships and being and communicating really goes a long way. And and again, like like I said, it's not that you're going to these people, your sponsors, your mentors, you're asking them for anything. You're not. You're really just sharing your journey. You're sharing your journey. You're being vocal as to what you want in the future. And then you're also hearing from them what has helped shape them. And then they, what, what, what they would do is that as things come up, they would think of you. And, and, I, and I'm a sponsor to many people because what happens is maybe I'll have a one-on-one conversation with someone already knowing that I don't have the capacity mm-hmm. to bring them on to something specific. But because I'm in so many different conversations, I can easily call someone's name and say, hey, I have someone I can recommend. There's someone that I met the other day. Oh, yeah, there's a, someone in my peer network that would be phenomenal for this. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to sponsor them and put their names up front. So, and that is really the power of networking. And I know it doesn't come easy for everyone, but I think you find your voice and figure out who you talk to and share your experience with so that they can support you in that sense. And then find ways for you to support them as well. Um, so one of the things that we've talked about, right, so you started out in accounting, clearly right now you're the head of diversity inclusion for North America for H&M, right? Those are not the same jobs. And so that means that you pivoted, you pivoted industries, you worked at Viacom for a really long time. Um, so for you, how do you know when it's time to move on to your next opportunity? Oh, I love that question. No, I am. I tell everyone, please pivot. Please, you know, be open to opportunities. I there's a certain I know there's a certain career goal that a lot of people have, but understand when other opportunities present themselves and you can capitalize on that opportunity. I think for me, I I, I have a I don't want to say a clear vision, but I have ideas of where I want to advance my career in and in, in corporate America because everyone always says. You don't want to just do your own thing and be an entrepreneur. I was like, I'm not there yet. You know, I'm I am here for the corporate America fight and 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 climbing up this this so-called ladder and, and breaking the ceilings. But <clears throat> I think that it's really important to understand the makeup of the business, right? If you're paying attention, so take yourself out of it and just take a paying attention to the industry that you're in, to the company that you work for, to who you're manager is and where are they going what are their goals what is the objective they can't make a space for you if the space does not exist 
If they're not looking to create this space that does not exist, then you need to decide for yourself. Now I probably need to find another space. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that for me, that's what it was. I think if I think about my first job to my second job, I knew that the role itself and the industry was not one that I wanted to be a part of. It had nothing to do with the company. I think they're great. I think my, my managers were actually phenomenal. But if, I, but if I'm being selfish to myself, I was like, Ezra, you need to move on. You need to move on and kind of figure out what's next. And then um, after <clears throat> being at Viacom MTV for, for long, I think what happened there too is like you have all these amazing opportunities but then sometimes they start, they start to come slower, you know, and or it's like you want to challenge yourself to something else. And again, I think let's don't focus on what the title is, but understand the experience that you can get, the network that you can build, what you can learn and then go. Once you stop learning, it's probably time to go somewhere else. And we often get comfortable with that, with the title, with the manager, with the flexibility, with the compensation. But if your goal, which it should be, is to learn in advance, I'm sure that at some point you'll have to move on to something else. So here's a bit of a tricky question, though. How do you know is if you've stopped learning or if that you're not willing to learn what needs to be taught? Right? Mm. There are some people yeah. who are like, I'm not learning anything. It's like, but you don't know how to do this, this, and this. You don't want to learn it, right? So yeah. you're right, right? That's your right. But how do you decipher between, like, if there are no more lessons, like, you've learned it all, it's time to move on? Or that like you just are not willing to do <laughs> what it is that needs to be done to learn the lesson. Yeah, no, and that's and I think that as a manager, that's what I would be looking at my staff, right? Mm-hmm. A staff that seems a bit frustrated or things are happening. I have very honest conversations. I'm like, well, what's your goal? Like, do you see that happening here? I would never tell anyone to leave, but I think you have to have maturity and self-reflection for yourself. To say, you know what, they have provided me with everything that they could have provided me with to their to their capability is mm-hmm. not enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, then you leave. Or, you, you know, you can't come and say, oh, I have nothing. I've been to no training. They're not doing anything for me. But then the company is producing amazing training opportunities and networking opportunities, and you're not going to any of them. And there are some people that do that. So I think that I think this is where your peer network also comes in, too. Because my, my peers will check me and say, well, what have you done? Who have you spoken to? Have you, have you had informational sessions with other departments? Have you gone and gotten maybe like a certificate program? Have you shown that you're taking initiative in, in different things? And if you have feel like you've successfully done all of those things and you're still not advancing, then I think it's time to consider something else. Let's talk about some black girl stuff. I was on your Instagram and I saw this collage you posted with nine different hairstyles. I don't know what the time frame was. I can't remember the time frame. But I know that one of the things that comes up frequently is like hair, right? So as someone who is, like you're the face for a lot in a lot of rooms for, you know, with high profile people. How do you think about hair? Has that changed over the course of your career? Yes, no, great question. I know me and my Instagram page. No, so <laughs> let me meet here. <laughs> People always ask me, um, <laughs> like, well, like my friends, you know, like, oh, what are you doing with your hair? Are you growing it out? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I honestly, I don't know. Like, my hair is just, as long as it looks neat, <laughs> that's really all that I care about. But when thinking about how it shows up in corporate, I think that. 
luckily for many of us, the perception of here on Black women is starting to change. You know, we have um, women that are wearing their hair natural. You have the Crown Act um, that that is talking about it's, it's against the law and discriminatory to discriminate against um, women wearing their hair in a certain way, especially Black women. And all of those things are amazing. And to think that we, one, to think we even needed an act, but okay, I'm glad we have it. But um, the conversation and the acceptance of it in, the, in corporate has started to shift. I do think that we do need to recognize that there are some unwritten rules. I did not write them. You know, it's just kind of out there in certain industries that you're in, um, in certain maybe areas of the world, in certain levels of your role, where people tend to be a bit more, quote unquote, I put quote unquote, conservative, because everyone has a different definition of that, Mm -hmm. and to what they, how they want to present themselves. You know, I think the important thing is, and I like to speak very honestly, I don't like to give fluff, I'm giving real answers. You have to take inventory at what industry you're in. You have to pay attention to um, what levels you're in, right? And then you can self-express yourself with completely. You can do whatever you want to do as long as you're getting the work done and as long as you're comfortable. I think for me, but oftentimes, because I change my hair actually very frequently, and when it becomes a topic of conversation, I just shut it down. I'm like, we're not about to be sitting here talking about my hair. Like, because you're going to talk about it now, and then a month from now, it's going to change anyway. So we don't even need to invest the time in talking about my hair. I hope you like it. This is what it looks like. Don't touch it, and let's move on. You know, so I, I, I and I do that in a way because I know that there's been times where people will try to touch your hair. Or they, oh, how did you do that? And, and I'm like, listen. I'm like, I'm glad you're interested, but we're not, I'm sure we have other things to talk about. And I just really changed the subject. But um, I think that what I would say too is you have to be comfortable with what you're presenting. And then if you're in a situation where people are asking about your hair or wanting to touch your hair, you stop them from doing so and you make it a teachable moment as to why they should not do it. Because what's going to happen is if you just simply say, no, don't touch or move with no type of content, what they're going to do is the next person is going to come and they're going to repeat the same thing because they they didn't learn anything there, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like if you think about a little child that's trying to touch fire, you say, stop, it's hot. Like you're explaining to them why they're not touching this because it's hot. So I think it's the same thing. It's like, oh, it's offensive if you try to touch a black woman's hair, we do not want that to be a topic of conversation. It doesn't identify who we are a hundred percent. But the thing, and so this is a conversation because I struggle with that myself because here's the thing. Let's say there's a, a woman, right? Yeah. And she's in the mall and a stranger comes up to her and touches her hair. She's going to think that that's weird. So why do you not think it's weird and you're doing it to me? Like there's some kind of like distance. Like yeah. if you had a daughter yeah. and you didn't know me and I just walked up to her and just like gently correct. Like you would be like, you would call the police. So like I think yeah. a lot of people are like, you understand that this is not, but it, sometimes it's like people are in a trance. Like they see your hair that they just can't help themselves. But that's yeah. what I've been talking about for a while. Like, well, that's, is- that's the thing. Yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's just being in awe, you know, of just kind of like, how does it do this? Like, how does it, curl like this how to just stand up like this i mean and, and it's and it's really interesting i mean equally annoying but it's interesting how people are fascinated with black women's hair you know but i think it's one of those things where it's kind of like 
they're always going to be fascinated with it. I mean, that's just the reality of it. So how do we now control it? And how do you make sure you do not feel like you cannot come to your workplace, your interview, et cetera, because of it? And I've had friends, we've talked about, like, especially my friends that are natural, oh, should I put my hair natural or do you think I should press it? And I'm like, well, who's the company and how do you feel? Because you don't want to do all this pressing. And then in the first month of you being there, you, you already like leaving your hair in this natural state so many times out of the week, because then just show up as to, if you naturally wear your hair in its most natural state, mm-hmm. go and be confident in the, in the interview that way. Because honestly, if they don't want to accept you because of that, that is not the place that you want to be. And I know that that's hard to say that when you're like in need of a job and you're looking to land something. But I think you have to think about it long term. If a company cannot accept the fact that today I have braids and I'm doing an interview with these braids, if I then the next time when I'm, when I'm talking about advocating for people of color or putting someone on the board of directors, how are they going to accept that? Mm. So I and think that we need to kind of be honest with that, too. And by your own admission, like you are a pretty chill person, but how do you um, think about communicating, right? So I think even when, when we are firm, it's a, oh, she's an angry black woman, or she's bitter, or she's all of those things. Like, do you think about and adjust your communication style to make sure that you don't get labeled with any of those things? Yeah, no, great question. No, I tell, <laughs> well, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm actually very laid back just by nature, but I also tell people, I'm very blunt and I'm very honest because I think that we need to do a better job in being blunt and honest and not worry about this angry black girl label that someone will say. Um, Because I think because of that, we've muted ourselves so many times. And I think that I've just gotten to the point in my career where I can't mute myself, especially if I am the core of change. If I can't speak confidently without being judged as being this angry person, then there's no way someone that's just starting the company or that's been here for a year or is in a more junior role is going to be able to speak up um, whenever they're having challenges. So those stereotypes um, and those judgments uh, exist. And you can see them sometimes in the workplace in the forms of microaggressions and certain things that people will say. And really what I do is I correct something if I see something or anything like that. But I gone of those days, I'm fortunate that I worry about the angry black girl syndrome. And I think those of you that are, are advancing to the next level, you know, I think it's one of those things. Don't, don't do not over code switch because you're trying to be something that you're not, because then the, what happens is it gets exhausting. And we understand that the reality of work is that you do have to be more professional than if you were hanging out in the park with your, your guy friends or your girlfriends or whatever it is. But you should also feel like you're coming to work as yourself. Like, this is my voice. And anyone that talks to me knows Esme is going to give me very direct and blunt feedback. So if I'm not ready for that, maybe I should go get feedback from someone else first. <laughs> and then I'll... And then I, and then I'll come back to her to get the final feedback, you know? And I think too is um, if you think about like uh, kind of going back to even um, parenting there's a, or even talking to like your friends and your family members, when you want something from someone, you deliver it in a bit of a different way, right? You're a bit more like soft about it and you're cheerful, you know? So it really depends on too, like what is it are you trying to achieve? And how does that person receive information? 
as you, I think you always, always pay attention to that too. And I think what I try to do is always provide a safe space for people to feel like they can come to me for anything. But if I think that it's BS, I'm going to be like, this is BS. Because the reality is white men do not worry about this at all. I, I'm in rooms with white men and they're using curse words, you know, it's like not, you know, just because like, oh, like this is some BS and, and those kind of things, because we've created this space of comfort and I don't judge them and think they're assholes or anything like that. I'm like, I am frustrated just as much as you're frustrated. I just don't curse uh, or I don't curse in the workplace for sure. And I'm, that's not going to change because we're more comfortable, but, but I'm glad you feel comfortable and you want to use that language around me. I'm not offended by it because I know you're just being expressive. So I think that we need to say that it's a form of expression and we are passionate and we're vocal and we're not going to be passive because of the fact that we're black. Like those days are gone, like unapologetically black. I'm going to tell you the way it is, how it is. And if you don't like it, let's talk about it. Because I think sometimes there, and the next question has to do with fear, but I think there's a fear of like, so you may, like, they may not tell you that you're an angry black woman, but then you realize that you're not getting included on certain projects because so now you've been labeled difficult to work with because you voice your opinion. So I think people are afraid, not necessarily like losing their jobs, because that's not the worst thing for some people. Like, you could be in a job and be stuck because yeah. all of a sudden you've gotten these labels because you are not the person who's going to just like nod and smile and take everything and, and, um, yeah. and act like it's cool. But so, Flip side, talking about fear with you, right? So a lot of times people don't take on um, large responsibilities because of fears of like, making mistakes, right? You took a job <laughs> that when you make a mistake, it's on like the blog, it's on paid sales. Okay. Like, y'all are getting dragged on the shade. Right? <laughs> In your job, like, one, why did you say yes to this? Especially in this time that we're living in. But two, how do you think about mistakes, like your own mistakes, your company's mistakes yeah. in the climate that we Yeah, yeah no, and that's the pressure. You know, I think that as, and you'll see, the more, as you advance, the more responsibilities you get. When, you're, when you are a um, Black woman in a leadership role, there's this added pressure that I'll be honest and say, it's not like someone put this pressure on me. It's just a, a pressure that I inherited. Um, and where you feel like you have to succeed, you have to excel, you have to do well, because you are representing, especially Black women, but the rest of the Black community is really on your shoulders, right? You are the one that is setting the stage for another person to be able to walk through the door and have the seat at the table. Um, So there is a lot of fear that comes into it, and you just kind of I don't, I don't know if it's overly cautious, but you're definitely like, I just want to do well. And I want my community specifically to see that we are trying to do the best that we can and we are striving for the better good of our community first. Like we have prioritized it. I think most of us in any type of leadership role and we are a person of color, we'll probably feel the same way. Like we're excelling because we know that we're representing for, for hundreds and thousands. Um, I think in, when, in, in considering my current role at H&M, you know, I think it's part of it. I think understanding that people are watching because the brand is a very well-known brand. Um, and I think that it just comes with the territory. I, I don't walk around every day worrying about, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Are we going to do something wrong? No, I think that the reality is mistakes are going to happen. Um, everyone is not perfect. But what are we doing to, to minimize those risks? 
And then also if, if something does happen, what are we learning from it? You know, if we're operating and proceeding based off all the things that we learned the same exact way, then we haven't grown. It's the same exact thing as me as a professional. If I'm comparing my past experiences to my current, I should be learning and growing and developing and maybe tweaking some things on my leadership style or the way that I, I work with other teams or the way that I communicate, the way that I document, the way that I respond should be advancing. So it's, it's the same similar thing. So it's, it's not, I think it's not so much fair, but it's, I think sometimes it's a pressure of, of knowing that you are the face of change and what does that mean? You know, right? You know, but I think that in, in taking the role, I think one thing that's important is we have this concept of cancel culture that I said many times that I don't agree with. You know, I don't think that canceling culture is is what creates change, but really part of change is being in the ring and being ready to fight together. You know, I think that that's where you make impact. And and I take my roles and the and the boards that I'm a part of and the organizations that I support with a lot of, 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 of esteem and really making sure that I'm excelling and I'm advocating for those groups. And anyone that will tell you, if I, if I don't have the bandwidth, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to join it. I'm not the person that just likes to put your name on the paper and you're just all over these places. That's not the way that I lead. I want to be impactful into everything that is associated with me so that I can always walk away and said, I did my part. Mm. I did the best that I can. And I did my part here the rest of it has to lean on the shoulders of other people. So I think definitely being um, super aware. And when we, when we are talking about change, we need to be part of it. We need to be right there. I mean, yes, we can create our own organizations and our own businesses, um, but there's still a corporate lens and there's still a lot of us that are in this space that are, actually creating opportunities for entrepreneurs to come in and to sell their product and to use their services, you know, so you need us into those spaces. And so it's important that we are at that table, but also being at that table that we have a voice, we have the mic in our hand, and we have the attention of everyone else as we're trying to deliver what this change needs to be. So I definitely think that um, cancel cancel culture, um, cancel fear and acknowledge the fact that there is a source of pressure that comes with it, but also understanding that it's for the greater good. You know, I think if you think about um, God rest his soul, um, John Lewis had just passed, you know, think about all the fight that he did, but he was there. He was there in the ring and he can rest in power knowing that he did his part. So what is going to be your role and your part to take? Because that's the conversation that I have with people who are like entrepreneurship is the only way. And I was like, but listen to this. Like if you have a black marketing exec at a corporation, they know that's the person who knows what they pay the white entrepreneur who can advocate for you as the black entrepreneur to get the same. If we're not in those rooms and everybody has started their own thing, you don't really have the inside. Like, we need to be everywhere. We need to be in every room, exactly. every industry, everything, making sure that we are getting treated fairly and that we at least have someone, right? Granted, we don't all, all, all uh, uh, skin folk and kin folk, like that they say, like we do have people who are not, but more often than not, it's going to be that black executive that's going to push harder for you to get what is yes. fair. And so like, we can't judge how people plan to like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, great. Not even just set out for it. If you want to be in corporate, great. If you want to be a nonprofit, great. But yes. like, 
there is not just one lane for Black people that we need to be we can take over everything is what I'm trying to do. Yes, yes. And the thing is, too, like, especially in the corporate space, you're, you you are, especially, again, when you get to that VP and above level, you tend to be the only. You have the network. So if you're not putting the Black creative, the Black photographer, the Black marketer, the Black influencer, the Black manager, if you're not putting their names out on the table, the sponsorship that we're talking about, who do you think is? Because the reality is your white counterpart, they don't even have the network. So they don't know who you are and not because they're trying to be mean about it. It's just not their circle. And it's the same thing, the same way where I can't rattle off a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of like white male, whatever, whatever it is, because that's not my immediate network. So what I have the influence in is that if I see that there's an opportunity, I can advocate and put someone's name on the table because that's my network, you mm-hmm. know? So I think it's important that we are in this spaces and, and we lead with confidence and, and really, honestly, I think it's just doing your part. Like, do your part, do your part. So this is the last question before we get to the lightning round, but something that, like, I think I've watched, like, five interviews and the thing that is consistent is that you said, like, you confidence and confidence. Like, I'm like, that, she should put yeah. that on a t-shirt. <laughs> She should wear it. And like, that is her thing, right? So a lot of young people have like confidence, whether it's earned or not, but the confidence piece like that's So like, are there, as someone who's managed people, as someone who's like worked with a, a broad range of people, are there common mistakes that you see young black women making unconsciously that their counterparts are not, that could be holding back their progression? Yes. And I think that this expands beyond black women, but I think just the, I would say just the, the, the younger generation is the thing of entitlement. Um, there's a lot of entitlement that I see all the time. People are like, well, I did this and I worked here and I've been here for five, seven, eight, ten years. And I'm like, that's great. But what have you accomplished? You know, how are you presenting yourself? How are you positioning yourself as a leader? as a team player, as a well-rounded individual, because as you, and you know, because in your role, as you advance in your career, it's less about the actual tactical work. And it's really about like how you make decisions, how you work with other people, what skill set, like what expertise are you bringing in the room? And that's how decisions, because you, you, a lot of decisions are being made are conversations. We're going back and forth about the pros and the cons of X, Y, and Z. So if you're not in spaces where you can be contributing to the topic, it will be hard for you to be able to advance because they're looking for someone that is well-rounded, that can lead a team and a function, et cetera. So how are you showing that with the managers that you work for now? You know, you don't have to have a formal title to show that you are innovative and to show that you take um, initiative. Mm-hmm. A title has nothing to do with that. You can just do it. So I, I, I often think that the sense of entitlement is something that I continue to see. But I think the other thing too is we definitely as black women, majority of us does have the confidence, I think, but it's just making sure that you back it up with like a strategic plan, with conversation, really showing that you're the expert and um, and oftentimes, not waiting for that invitation to be in the meeting. Put yourself in the meeting. I've, d- I've done that, too. You know, I'm like, oh, I heard. 
Of course you have. Of course you would manage yourself to somebody's meeting. I'm like, wait, what's happening? Yeah, I'm like, wait, what meeting is happening? Oh, okay. Oh, I, I think I'm free at that time. Hold on, let me. Yeah, I'm free. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm here. I'm free. Listen, I either find the meeting owner or I will walk to someone that's going to the meeting and then I will sit my ass right down. <laughs> And, but but the, here's the catcher though. I, the difference is so I'm 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 walking in confidence, right? But then when I'm in the meeting, I am leading with competence because I'm going to be a key contributing member of this conversation. So you can see, my goodness, why we didn't even think about adding her to the meeting in the first place. So then what happens is every meeting after that, you'll be you'll be pressed to find my time. And not all, we have to make sure she's available, less schedule around her because I came, I was walking because, you know, you're partially pissed. Um, and then, but you're like, I'm going to be confident. I'm going to just walk in here. I dare somebody to tell me to leave. But then when you're there, you're making sure that you're coming with the solutions. Like you're providing really good intel. And I, and I think that that's really for all meetings. I say that a lot too. I think that one of the things that I think set me apart from my, career as I reflect back in it I always always made sure I contributed some way like in these meetings that you have and meetings can be very exhausting they're so long some of them are extremely unnecessary but I'm always like okay what is the purpose of me being here right like what can I add in what can I co-sign if I feel like someone's voice is not being heard how can I advocate for that person's voice in the room and again, there's very certain ways of doing that without making this whole, like, it's not a whole scene. You know, I just say, oh, I'm like, oh, I don't think we've heard much from Rebecca. I'm like, Rebecca, did you have something you wanted to add? Simple. And, I and then it really makes everyone else pause and look and say, oh, wow, you're right. Like, she's been sitting here and we haven't even asked her a thing. And, you know, and you can see people's body language where they, they kind of want to jump in, but they don't really know what to say or how to say it. I think that if you're in those spaces, try to encourage that too. Um, I will say though, the flip side of that, being a person, being someone who people change meetings around for, it's a gift and a curse. Because I'm like, I don't gotta be, uh-uh. Like, it's yes. just cool. You can, you can totally have to like, no, we need your voice. I'm like, I don't, I, got, I can't. Like, so my, yes. is, so be really strategic about where you stepping into because yes. people realize like what you have to contribute. Then it's like, oh, we want it all the time. And yeah. So, trade, trade. No, it's so true. It's so true. And I think that I try to pull other people in when stuff like that happens. Or I'll say, hey, um, okay, well, what's the objective? I'm like, why don't you guys talk first? And then feel free to update me as to what the direction was. And I'll let you know if I have any additional um, items to add into that. Because you're right. I think once you become this trusted voice, everyone wants a piece of it. So, I think you have to manage... Yeah, you have to manage your um your your ability and and your capacity in order to get things done, and don't overstretch yourself for things that again, because like I always say, I, I always reflect and tell myself, I'm like, if I was a white guy, would they do this? You know, honestly, I do that too. Yeah, and in the beginning, it's really good for your ego to be like, oh, they want they want the kid. Oh, they want they want me in all the meetings, and then you're like, oh, I've been in seven hours of meetings. I've gotten no work done. Right? Like there's yeah. last week, there was a um, everybody else in the executive team can make a meeting except me and my CEO changed the meeting, and I was like, I don't have time for like 
but at the like that's where we were and it changed and I was able to make it. But but in the beginning, you couldn't tell me nothing. I was like, yes. yeah. Come on, it's <laughs> oh well, I'm only available from 10 to 11 15. Can you do it then? Yeah. And now I'm like, ah, help, help me. Uh, okay, so we're gonna that is so it's so so true. So true. We're gonna move on to the light down. Don't think too much about these questions, like the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, okay. So what's one piece of career advice you wish you'd gotten earlier in your career? Oh, um, one piece of career advice early in my career. It would definitely be your um, your network is just as important as the work that you're doing. Like who is in your network? Who's advocating for you? I think I was one of those people that was just trying to let my work speak for itself, but realizing the only person that was seeing my work was me and my boss <laughs> and nobody else. So it's really important to like know, like have a strong network and make sure that, again, like I said before, make sure people know you and know what you're doing. It, it, will, it will help out in the long run. Yeah. What's the career lesson that took you the longest to learn, but has had the biggest impact on your career? Ooh, that took the longest to learn. Um, I think it's two things, if I may. I think the first thing is um, the confidence in my work. I think really, truly, truly feeling like I belonged in the room. Mm -hmm. I I think it it was a lot of times where it's like, you felt like you belong, but then you still like keep second guessing, second guessing, second guessing. But I think now I'm kind of like, how dare you not have me in the room? Like it's completely changed. So, but I think, I think in the beginning, no, it took a long time and you, you know, you get good performance reviews and all these things and still you're second guessing, you're second guessing, you know, you've gone through these classes, you, you have a robust network and you're still second guessing. And I think that I had to learn like, no, like girl, you're dope. You know, I think a lot of the time, especially as black women, we hesitate for, giving ourselves pride and, and giving ourselves credit for things that we've done. And it's okay to say I'm dope. It's okay to say I did that. It's okay to say I run that and I'm a boss. And I don't think I was that comfortable or before, like a, a couple of years ago. And then being able to say that you always like, Oh, I need to be super humble. I, I mean, I still am very super humble if anyone that knows me, but I think in addition to that is not being afraid to say, yep, I'm great. I think the other thing, too, just to add on there is um, it took me a long time to also be able to delegate and let other people do the work. You know, I felt like I had to have my hands on every single thing. And to your point earlier, it just became overwhelming, like you're you're stretched beyond belief. Um, So it took me a long time to get there. But now I've mastered how I can get people to support me in the work that I'm doing. Mm. What's one book that you could read over and over again? Uh, becoming Michelle Obama. Um, she feels like the girl next door. You, I just see so much of myself in her and just, um, just the stamina and just so grounded, you know, like she, I would consider her such a grounded leader and a change maker. And her book is just so eye opening. You read it all the time. Like, yep, we did that. Yep. This was me. I mean, I didn't grow up in Chicago, but I always play that back in my head of, of how that is. Yeah. Uh, and then the last question is, we all know that decisions about your career are going to be made when you're not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? Oh, my God. These are hard questions. 
you're really making me think. Um, when I'm not in a room where people are saying, I'm hoping they're saying that she's amazing. <laughs> um, I hope they're saying that uh, she's such a hard worker. She's passionate. Um, she's a team player. She's a leader. She listens. She's grounded. Um, I, and, and she has pushed us and really supported in everything that we do. We can always count on her. Mm. And on that note, thank you very, very much for doing this conversation with me. I hope it was worth your time. Yes, it was. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. So now I hope you all understand why I went so hard to make sure that I had Esme on the podcast. She is amazing. And you all know that I like to end every episode with my top three gems that I got from the from the conversation. So the first one is make sure people know you and know what you're doing. I also was someone who in the, like the early parts of my career felt like I should just put my head down and do work and work would speak for itself. But if you've been in corporate for any amount of time, you know, like that's not really how it works. And so people need to know you and that they know they need to know what you're doing. The second thing, which I'm not as bold as Azanine is and like inviting myself to meetings, um, but you need to figure out what rooms you need to be in, get in those rooms, and then add value, right? To the point where people are like, oh no, we need her in the room, and they understand because you've contributed so much and you've added so much value. And then the last part, and I love this, like, it's okay to big up yourself, right? Like, you're gonna have a lot of people who don't believe in you. You shouldn't be one of those people. So, like, Find ways to celebrate yourself. Find ways to encourage yourself. Find ways to be like, yeah, I did that. And sometimes if you need to pull out receipts on people and stunt on people a little bit, like that's okay too. Like still be humble, but also be proud of the things that you've accomplished and the contributions that you've made. This is a lesson that I'm still learning. Um, so I really appreciated her being like, yeah, you know what? It's okay to big up yourself. As always, if you want to keep the conversation going, Join us in the, the newsletter by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. You can find us on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder and also on Facebook at I Choose the Ladder Podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening.